Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Erasmus described him as more pure than any snow. G.K. Cheston said he may be counted the greatest Englishman. Jonathan Swift called him a person of the greatest virtue this kingdom ever produced. They were all talking of Sir Thomas More a remarkable intellectual who operated at the court of Henry VIII. He was the scholar who wrote Utopia, which, published in 1516, describes the alternate political world of an imaginary island. He rose to become Lord Chancellor of the realm and opposed the Lutheran Reformation. He is venerated by the Roman Catholic Church as a saint. To some, when he refused to swear an oath to the succession in 1534, with its implicit agreement to Henry VIII's position as supreme head of the church, he died a martyr. I beg you earnestly to pray for the king. Tell him I died his good servant, but God's first. And yet, he is a character who polarises opinion. Nowhere is this better seen than in his depiction on film. On the one hand, for example, in Robert Bolt's 1966 film A Man for All Seasons, he was the man of conscience. On the other, in Wolf Hall from 2018, based on Dame Hilary Mantel's novel of the same name, Moore is a vicious, bigoted zealot who was always haughty and who enjoyed persecuting heretics. How do these cinematic versions stack up? Who was the real Moore? In this episode, another of our Not Just the Tudors Lates, my panel will decide. I'm joined once again by Professor Sarah Churchwell, Dr. Joanne Paul, Jesse Childs and Alex von Tunzelman. Hello team, it's very good to see you all again. Today we're going to be thinking about three contrasting pictures of Thomas More on film. So we've got our one from 1966, the classic A Man for All Seasons, where of course we've got Robert Shaw as Henry VIII, and we've got Paul Schofield playing More. We've got The Tudors from 2007 to 8, perhaps slightly less classic, Jonathan <laughs> Rhys Myers as Henry VIII, and we've got Jeremy Northam as More and Warfall. So Damien Lewis is Henry VIII, Anton Lesser is more, and we have to mention, of course, Mark Rylance, who is Cromwell. And I also want us to think about the real Moore, which is why our Moore expert here, Joe, <laughs> writing a biography of Moore, is the person to go to. So what I find so interesting about Thomas Moore is that he seems to be depicted in all sorts of completely contradictory ways. On the one hand, he's a sinner. On the other hand, he's a saint. 
of these three that we watched, which did you find most cinematically convincing and why? Sarah? <laughs> start with me as the person who probably knows the least about Thomas More on the panel. <laughs> I'm very tempted to say A Man for All Seasons because it is such a powerful piece of filmmaking and so persuasive. And as somebody who doesn't actually know very much about Thomas More, I found myself reacting against that because it's so controlled and started to feel propagandistic. And I decided that at the end of it, Jeremy Northam's Thomas More in The Tudors is the person I can believe in the most. Hmm. Okay. Alex. Sarah's just stolen my thunder. I was going to say the same thing. I mean, I really respect A Man From All Seasons. It's a brilliant piece of writing. It's a brilliant film and so wonderfully acted. And Wolf Hall is also amazingly well made. But actually, the thing that moved me most when I watched it this time was Jeremy Northam in The Tudors. How interesting. <laughs> Maybe it's the modernist speaking. Mm, it might be. <laughs> in the corner. Jesse. I like Jeremy Northam, but I don't like the Tudors, so I'm not going to pay that. <laughs> I can't forget the Tudors for making the Earl of Surrey a dour old Scot. <laughs> I and I would say Paul Schofield, because he is remarkable. Mm. But I was re-watching it. I was thinking, who does he remind me of? And I was thinking, is it Tucker from Grange Hill? No. Is it Dominic West? A bit. <laughs> it's Jordan Peterson. I'm going to go Anton Lesser because he is a remarkable actor. And mm. I know it is a travesty in parts. And there are certain scenes that are too far, mm. but I think he's remarkable. Okay, great. Joe? This is a really hard question for me because I probably know too much about Thomas More, <laughs> frankly. And now you've just said that Jordan Pearson Sorry. thing. Um, <laughs> so I probably was going to say Man for All Seasons. And I think I still will. In terms of who Thomas More was as an intellectual, as a wit, I think that captures it perfectly. Mm. But I do agree the Tudors is taking more from the record that we have. There's a realness to the presentation of Thomas More, ignore literally everything else, <laughs> that does come through in the Tudors. Now, we need a little brief introduction to each of the versions we've seen. So what I mean is how we'd characterise More in each of these so in a sense, what we're seeing here is three very, very different versions of more usually balanced against Cromwell. Mm. So this is a kind of who's your favourite Thomas situation, <laughs> basically. Man for All Seasons, the protagonist is more. We are in his life, we're in his head. He's very much the hero of the piece. Cromwell is definitely a villain. In The Tudors, it's actually quite balanced, it interestingly. It was quite revisionist in its time. You know, if you look at the particular episode, of course, with Moore's execution, then more comes out of that very heroic and Cromwell quite villainous. But actually, in the whole spread of the Tudors, Cromwell actually is quite a balanced character, more so than he'd probably been on screen before. And then we come to Wolf Hall, where, of course, Cromwell is the protagonist. And so Moore actually is cast as the villain. So these three versions are really extremely different in terms of what they're doing. And it's actually drawn from presentations of Moore in the 16th century. So if we take as our two opposite sides, Man for All Seasons and Wolf Hall, Man for All Seasons is heavily based on the very hagiographical biographies of Moore, largely coming out of his family and other Catholic exiles. Whereas Wolf Hall is based on people like John Fox and his Book of Martyrs, this sort of Protestant propaganda that tries to villainize Moore. And you can see these lines of interpretation going from the 16th century into the 20th and 21st. Actually, so something I wanted to ask you about is that we have a couple of adaptations or mediations that we need to bear in mind here because A Man for Seasons is a screen version of an award-winning play by Robert Bolt. Wolf Hall is an adaptation of Hilary Mantel's novel Wolf Hall, or the first two novels, actually, of her Wolf Hall trilogy. What difference does that make? I'm going to look to the screenwriter here. <laughs> 
Well, what that shows us is that it's almost like an onion. You're looking at layers and layers of Tudor retelling, historicizing, fantasizing, fictionalizing, all of this going on on top of each other. So we're kind of reaching the point, I think, with some Tudor characters like Anne Boleyn, where I'd almost say they're like a franchised figure like Batman. You know, this is a figure that you will see appear in so many different ways. And people who like Anne Boleyn, Anne Boleyn fans, will go and see Anne Boleyn movies or watch Anne Boleyn TV or whatever it is. We're looking at the somewhat elevated version of, you know, Thomas's Cromwell and Moore being mediated through that world. But it's really interesting to see that actually completely different narratives can be got out of the same story from changing that point of view. Yes, and both being quite faithful in some ways to the sources, but it's what you said, it's which sources, which mm -hmm. mediations. Yes. And what's interesting to me is, I didn't know if you know this, but Robert Bolt also wrote the screenplay for Lawrence of Arabia. And Dr. Zhivago. Exactly, yeah. which are on completely different scales. Yeah. I mean, this much more keeps a sort of set piece of a play, doesn't mm. it? Yeah. I'll tell you what, though, he must have done his research. I mean, that is some bold screenwriting to take on those three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I could write. They're amazing. I mean, all completely amazing yeah. screenplays. But also the director, Fred Zinnemann, mm. is hugely interesting as well. Austrian-born Jew whose parents were killed in the Holocaust. You look at High Noon, a sort of a loner, a principled figure, a standalone <laughs> against the sort of quizzling nature of the rest of society. I thought that was interesting. You know, as E.H. Carr always says, study the historian, we've got to study the director yeah, as well, don't yeah. we? It's not just a question of, as Alex rightly says, the kind of dueling Thomases, or as you say, these different portraits, but what is the historical lens that each era is taking? And why does that moment choose that more? Why does that moment choose that Cromwell to be the antagonist or the protagonist? And I think with enough distance from the 60s, it's really interesting to look back again at The Man for All Seasons. I mean, that was a movie that I grew up watching. My mother loved it. It was the kind of thing. It was a masterpiece theater, as we called it. And so my mother planted us in front of A Man for All Seasons when I was much too young to understand what it was. But I got that it was a courtroom drama. And for me, now watching it again, it's so clear the way in which it's also being positioned. Because, of course, this is a Hollywood version of a British playwright's story. So we've got that extra layer. It's not just the adaptation, but the cultural mediation. Mm -hmm, yes. So a Hollywood version that won Oscars for Best Picture and for Paul Schofield as Best Actor. And the play itself won the Pulitzer Prize. So the sense that this was something that American society wanted to hear in the 60s. This was something that it was ready to embrace. And I was really struck watching this one. I think you could genuinely be forgiven for not knowing that the fight was over religion in A Man for All Seasons. It's mm -hmm. such a secularized courtroom drama. Faith almost never comes into it. And the sense that it's actually drawing not just on Fred Zinnemann's, of which I totally agree with, particularly High Noon, but some of the great courtroom dramas that had come out in mid-century America. They've done Thomas More's Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, mm -hmm. pulling on these courtroom drama traditions. And what you really see, I think, to a great extent, is the sense of him as a lawyer rather than as a man of faith. And then it's interesting to see how the early 21st century adaptations bring faith back into it as that comes more into our political framework. Let's have a think about A Man for All Seasons more generally. This is the one that follows quite closely the hagiographical account of more written by his son-in-law, William Roper, who is indeed a mm. character in this, which he really isn't anywhere else. What do you make of the character presented here and what do we make of this by comparison to what we know of more? I actually find even though he's a saint and even though it's obviously a sympathetic portrayal, he's actually quite unlikable and mm. you can't really want him all that much in the movie which in a way I quite like because it would be so much easier to make him entirely lovable I don't think he is entirely lovable I think it's pretty horrible you almost feel for Richard Rich until the end when you realize ah he clocked him 
but yeah, I sort of think that Schofield doesn't go all the way. I think one of the things about banging on about historical accuracy, and, and we can bang on and it, it can take away from the enjoyment of a film, but one of the things it does is it highlights the choices of the writer or director because they've chosen not to go with what is available to them. And actually, Thomas More in Man for All Seasons is entirely opposite to Thomas More's own beliefs in one particular way. And that is his individualism, Mm -hmm. his defense of Mm -hmm. individual belief. Uh, It's not because I believe it, but because I believe it. Mm -hmm. And that's actually even more pronounced in the play. There's Mm -hmm. much more about that and about the fact that he might be wrong and could be wrong, but that isn't what the issue is. The issue is that he should be entitled to his own beliefs and not what the state imposes on him. And that is exactly Mm -hmm. what Thomas More thought was wrong with the world. He thought that this sort of proto-individualism, this pride and belief in your own beliefs and desire to defend one's own individual beliefs against the masses was precisely what was ripping apart Christendom, what was ripping apart the kingdom. And he saw himself very much in the majority. And all of that is taken Mm -hmm. out of, indeed, the trial he talks about quite a lot. And almost everything else he says is imbued with this idea. He would have completely hated everything about Man for All Seasons. <laughs> and as you say, it's not just because yeah. it's a kind of modern 20th century liberal democracy view, but it's specifically a Protestant view. Yeah, that is a mm-hmm. Protestant worldview, is exactly that, that it is about your individual relationship to God rather than the church's teachings about the relationship. And yet Protestantism isn't really a term yet. It's mm. not in the language. It's Christendom, it's Catholicism. There are a few new reformers, there are a few evangelicals. So for more, it's sort of this infection mm-hmm. that is growing in the body politics politic and needs to be cut out quickly. But he's not thinking of Protestants be Catholics yet. I mean, that's no, too early. But Sarah's yeah. absolutely right how he saw Lutherans or, or followers of Luther, as he would have thought about these Lutheran heretics, as he saw them, he says it directly that they're taking the authority from these proper bodies and giving it to anyone, whatever. And there's this phrase that he uses, this idea that they're individualizing authority. That's what terrified him. I agree. But also is it not sort of more actually about power? And it's Henry VIII who's really the one. Well, I think he sees them as comparable. It's all about pride. It's Henry VIII's pride. He Mm. thinks that he knows better than the whole of the church across all of space and time. And same with Luther and anyone who follows him. And instead, what Bolt is suggesting is very much the individual against the coercive state Mm. in the age of dictators, in the age of McCarthyism. McCarthyism, absolutely. So it is completely rewritten. Let's have a look at a clip and see what you make of this. Now remember, the visit's a surprise. Yes, but he'll know we're expecting him when he it's sees all It's a very great honour, one friend calling on another, you see. What's he really coming for? Talk about the divorce. He wants an answer. But he's had his answer. He wants another. Thomas! Your Majesty does my house more honour than I fear my household will bear. No ceremony, Thomas, no ceremony. Passing fancy, happened to be on the river. Look! By heaven, what an evening. Lady Alice, I fear we came upon you unexpectedly. Yes, Your Grace. Well, no, Your Grace. 
Well, that is, we, we are ready to entertain This your... is yes. my daughter Margaret, sire. She's not yet had the honor to meet your grace. Why, Margaret, they told me you were a scholar. Answer, Margaret. Among women, I pass for one, your grace. Antiquine modo latina loqueris an oxoniensi. Quimmi doquit pater, domine. Mene. Optimum est. Grecamne linguam quoque te docuit. Grecamne docuit non pater meus, sed mei patris amicus, Johannes Collatus Sancti Pauli Decanus. In liturgis grecis tamen nominus quam latinus, as magistri minuiter de Schipolis tutitia. Can you dance too? Not well, your grace. Well, I dance superlatively. That's a dancer's leg, Margaret. <laughs> One of the things I'm particularly interested in thinking about how it depicts the relationship between Henry and Morb. There's so much to love about this clip, just disembarking, jumping into the mud, everyone freaking out that he's going to freak out, but then no, it's okay, he doesn't. And then all these kind of hilariously dressed popping jays, his entourage. It's just so wonderful. And I mean, immediately you get this idea of this completely pampered princeling. Mm. Everybody's scared of him. So there actually is a sense of threat, despite his ridiculousness. No one can talk properly. Moore has to show his whole family how to behave. He's really managing that situation. The popping jays are all giggling appropriately at every joke. So there's a sense of, even though it's ridiculous, you get that power mm -hmm. and you get that threat. It's a very, very clever scene. Mm. There's that brilliant line about Henry Bates Court being like, having fun with him is like having fun with tamed lions. And often it's fun, <laughs> but just as often there's the fear of harm. Often he roars in a rage for no known reason and suddenly the fun becomes fatal. And it's that, yes, it's that moment when you're not quite sure whether he's going to laugh or not. Well, that's the line from Moore's own poem, because they use it in Wolf Hall, but I actually think the original is much more powerful because it's about a tamed lion who's taught to lick people. And people come up and the handler sort of says, oh, it's okay, you know, he can lick you and you'll be perfectly safe. And one comes up and says, well, it's not the tongue that bothers me. It's that it's so <laughs> close to those teeth, right? And which I think is really about language as well, um, which of course Moore's story is all about language and oaths and what you say and everything else. So just this idea of the tongue being proximate to the teeth. Yes, I love the fact that we're shown Margaret's education, <laughs> how it humiliates Henry, but it can be redeemed because she's not good at dancing, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. But there's a sense in which she gets that, right? I mean, certainly the scene allows for us to interpret it as that she could be a perfectly good dancer, but oh, yeah. she is, mm -hmm. you know, playing to the king's vanity because she is also just as intelligent as her father. Yeah. And so it leaves it open to doubt whether she is a good dancer or not, mm -hmm. but definitely it's the answer that Henry wants to hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I also think that this scene lets Paul Schofield bring out some charm in Thomas mm. More because, again, regardless of whether one is historically particularly knowledgeable about More, as I've said, I'm certainly not, that to understand why this man would be as beloved as he was, why he would even inspire hagiographies in the first place, you surely have to posit a certain amount of charm, a mm. certain amount. I mean, that's just a premise of common sense. People are going to love him that much. That's part of the problem with the depiction in Wolf Hall is that you can't understand why this man would be loved and you can't understand why this man would educate his daughter. But you can understand the way that Paul Schofield portrays this man, why people would be drawn to him, why his family would defend him to the death, literally. 
and that this is a man who would educate his daughters when nobody else in Europe was educating their daughters. This is literally the man who I think Erasmus said that he was convinced that women could be educated because of the way that Thomas More's, maybe I just read that somewhere and that's wrong, but that kind of, he certainly had that kind of reputation. Yeah, yeah right? he was at the forefront of educating yeah. women, although there were limits to that. But I, I love that that's we get given. to see Margaret, because actually yeah. in most of the other depictions, if anything, she comes in to talk him out of his To say some and, Latin to show that he taught his daughters. Well, exactly. And then she yeah, and she's, she's yeah. quite a presence yeah. in this film. Mm. Probably has just as many lines as a lot of the prominent male characters. And it's nice to see her in that fullness in this film. Absolutely. I'm going to ask for another clip to mm. pick up on this idea about words mm. and more as someone operating with verbal dexterity from A Man Four Seasons. I can't get home. They won't bring me a boot. You blame them? Is it as bad as that? It's every bit as bad as that. Then it's good of you to be seen with me. Oh, I followed you. Were you followed? Thomas, you're dangerous to know. Then don't know me. I don't know you. I mean as a friend. I am your friend. I wish I wasn't, but I am. What's to be done then? Give in. I can't give in, Howard. Our friendship's more mutable than that. Oh, the one fixed point in a world of turning friendship is that Thomas Moore will not give you. To me, it has to be, for that's myself. Affection goes as deep in me as you, I think. But only God is love right through, Howard. And that's my self. And who are you? A lawyer and a lawyer's son. We're supposed to be the proud ones, the arrogant ones. We've all given in. Why must you stand out? God damn it, man, it's disproportionate. Break my heart. No one is safe, Howard. And you have a son. We'll end our friendship now. For friendship's sake? Yes. Daft. This is just a wonderful example of Robert Bolt's incredible verbal dexterity that he's added to this screenplay, you know, making the characters so smart, so pithy, mm. so quick to think. I always find it very funny because now Joe, of course, the expert, is going to have to jump in and correct me if I've got it wrong. But if you read some of Moore's actual writing, say the response to Luther, mm-hmm. he was kind of a potty mouth. Oh, I think mm-hmm. it's fair to say. You know, Moore was not always the most elegant speaker. You know, when he describes Luther, he describes him as a pimp and an ass, and his mouth as the shit pool of all shit and all yeah. of this. And you know, farts anathema. There yeah. we go. Yeah. Yes, yes. Oh, that's a nice turn of phrase. It's though. a really it wonderful one. <laughs> but you know, he's in real life very sweary quite rude and all of this and you have him transformed into this kind of incredible erudite measured guy and there's a bit of a clean-up going on here isn't there joe i mean at the same time you know we're picking pieces out of his writings the collected works are 15 volumes and some of those have more than one part (laughs) so there are moments where i think he is as erudite as this and certainly he's as witty and complex so there's a sense of almost Shakespeare in this, mm. where you have to think about it a few times and it takes you a few minutes to go, oh yeah, okay, I see what's, what's going on there. And that's certainly the case with a lot of his writings. I mean, this is the man who wrote Utopia, which is probably one of the most enigmatic texts, certainly to come out of that era, if not in a wider English tradition. So he is both. And that is part of what makes him, A, so difficult to understand, <laughs> yet we try, but also the foundation on which we can build two very, very different interpretations of one person. Can I be really heretical? But to say, actually, was that a bit boring? Ooh. 
<laughs> I mean, I find also a man for all seasons. Everything's a little slower. Yeah. And maybe it's because our attention spans are shorter now. But I did actually feel it went on a little bit too long. The pacing is quite different from what you do now. And perhaps that's one of the reasons that some of us find the Tudors more emotionally appealing, <laughs> even if one can critique lots of things about it, is actually just that it punches up the speed but as somebody who actually did watch a man for all seasons when i was quite young and you know as this most of it went over my head i was probably about 12 or something so i went into it remembering it as this incredibly long and slow mm. and now it felt pretty snappy to me actually because <laughs> it comes in at under two hours and it's like it's tight and i was like man he's already on trial how did that happen you know and um, nobody's mentioned catholicism yet i'm a little bit you know but i agree that although the language hasn't dated its treatment has dated in that it is highly reverential mm -hmm. and that makes it stodgy and mm -hmm. it's very talky mm -hmm. so it is a movie in which there is almost no sex and it's still 1966 you could in fact have depicted some sex if they had wished to right even for its time it's kind of talky and reverential and that's mm -hmm. why it won oscars and things it's was, preachy and that's very preachy it's really it is very preachy that's why i find it interesting on the legalistic side of things in that I find it legally preachy in that way, but actually yeah. I just find it more self-satisfied. Yeah. But the cleverness is absolutely still there, mm. and I think it still registers. So ironically, I found it kind of fast-paced. Man Four Seasons ends by saying that Henry VIII dies of syphilis. Oh, uh. I, could, I couldn't forgive them that. But, <laughs> uh, but talking things I couldn't forgive, and I really feel like we need to move on to the Tudors. <sighs> I'm just going to put my cards on the table here and say I find this unbelievably difficult to watch. I find the raunchification, if that's a word, of the period makes my skin crawl. Mm. Though I understand that's precisely why people tuned in. I feel like there may be some more fans of the Tudors in this group. What do you make of this? You're looking at me because you know I'm guilty of sin. I mean, I just love a piece of real historical accuracy. I like to yeah, really dig in to a totally disrespectful version. I mean, I do think, that with the serious side, I will say that all historical fiction is about the present, always, mm -hmm. 100%. That's what it is. It's not about the past. The past is a fantasy zone, just as if you're setting something in space. You know, the Starship Enterprise is a fantasy zone. You know, if you want an accurate representation, you just shouldn't look to fiction at all. That's not what it's for. Mm. And what I think the Tudors is, is something that has tremendous fun. The thing that I will say to redeem it in this is that actually, if you're looking at Moore and Cromwell, this is quite interesting from previous versions. Because when this was made, of course, you know, 2007 to 8, I think still A Man for All Seasons was, for the viewing public, mm -hmm. was kind of where the line was. Yeah. Mm. But in terms of audiences just watching this, it's pretty radical to show that relationship somewhat rebalanced and to show Cromwell as considerably, you know, not considerably more sympathetic, but more also still as sympathetic. I mean, I think, and I think Jeremy Northam is amazing. I think yeah, he's incredibly good in the role. And you said about, you know, a good bit of historical inaccuracy is always fun. And certainly we'd be here all night if we tried to list all the historical inaccuracies. However, with at least in this episode of sort of the fall of Thomas More, which is the one we've been assigned to look at, it is amazingly historically accurate. They are using the records more than either of the other two that we're looking at. It is using the documents and not really messing with them that much. I'm actually really glad to hear that because it absolutely has that ring Ooh. of authenticity, which would have been extremely clever of them to have been able to manufacture as persuasively as they do. And as the other kind of modernist who looks at, you know, historical fiction and mythology from that specific prism, I would say I absolutely agree with Alex that, as you say, historical fiction is always about its moment, but I'm less 
categorical that it's only fiction. It's also about history. And it is, obviously, it's an act of history and an act of historiography. And therefore, the best fictions for me are the ones that find that confluence with preoccupations of the present and bringing history to life in a way that's Mm -hmm. persuasive for the audiences, whether that's audiences in the day because of the things that they're interested in or to the point of audiences who are informed. Back to the original question that Susie framed to us is, who do you find plausible? So I know the Tudors is nonsensical on any number of levels. And I don't relish in that quite the way that Alex does. I'm somewhere between the two of you probably on that. (laughs) I I just find it silly and I kind of think, well, why am I wasting my time with it? And then I find myself watching something like the performance of Jeremy Northam. And I think, oh, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of something that is froth and silliness much of the time, suddenly there comes this moment. And not just in that episode. Actually, every time for me Northam's on screen, I will fangirl Jeremy Northam for some time and in many of his performances. He brings, again, that charm that we were talking about about that sense that this is somebody that people would like. But unlike in A Man for All Seasons, this is not a hagiographic portrayal. And you think it will be at the beginning. He has been set up to be Mr. Knightley, to be Jeremy Northam. And then, oh my God, you see him relishing the burning of heretics. You see the cruelty and you see the savagery and the anger. So I think that in the midst of that fun and silliness, you can find yourself taken aback by the way in which the relationship between fiction and history can suddenly do something explosive and exciting. Mm -hmm. And for me, the Tudors, not the place I would have predicted, I would never have put money on the table that that was where it was going to happen, but for me it did. Well, I was going to save this clip for a bit later, but could we have a look at the clip from the Tudors? Because this precisely goes to what we've been talking about in terms of a series not famed for its historical accuracy, (laughs) borrowing Moore's lines. We'll see in this clip that Henry Cavill is unable to make the sign of the cross and Thomas <laughs> Boleyn is apparently Draco Marfil, but apart yeah. from that, yeah. <laughs> I ask you to bear witness with me that I shall now suffer death in and for the faith of the Holy Catholic Church. I beg you earnestly to pray for the king. Tell him I died his good servant, but God's first. I ask for your pardon and blessing. You give me this day a greater benefit than any mortal man can ever be able to give me. Pluck up your spirits, man. Be not afraid to do your office. What do you make of this. Do you feel like it has something of Moore's spirit? I think so. A lot of the lines are from historical record. That doesn't mean they were necessarily said, but they are drawing from the best that they can in terms of proximity to what happened. The line about, let me shift for myself on the way down, something he's reported to have said, which is a joke, right? Thanks for helping me get up the stairs. I'll get down on my own. (laughs) And he was criticized afterwards, actually, for making jokes on the scaffold. He also makes one about, as you slice through my neck, just be careful of my beard. I like that yeah. image of Moore as someone who could make jokes. He was and scaffold. Did. And he was very funny. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. missing. In all of them. Well, I think Schofield gets one. closest. Well, this one yeah. gets yeah. closest. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. they're not delivered as jokes. No. Because a modern audience wouldn't think that's funny. It's all how you tell it. Yeah, well, yeah. maybe. But it surely is predicated and, and must have been in reality, given that it is in the historical record, assuming that it's even reasonably accurate predicated on his absolute faith, right? So this is predicated on his absolute confidence that he's about to be greeted by God. So you can imagine somebody with that absolute, total, devout, 
faith and confidence being able to make a joke because they mm -hmm. genuinely believed that they were going to paradise. That's right? part of the martyrdom yeah. narratives. Yeah. Throughout yeah. Modern audiences don't see how you could find humor on the scaffold, but you could. It's a really tricky thing to communicate the meaning of faith in this kind of time to modern audiences because it's something that we just don't have on the scale that they had. I mean, of course, individuals may have faith, but the driving force of that is something that modern audiences often really struggle with. So actually filmmakers often face this real difficulty. And I think it's really interesting that those lines that, you know, you say he delivered almost as jokes. Jeremy Northam delivers them beautifully, mm. but with a seriousness, but there is a kind of wryness to mm -hmm. them, I think, mm -hmm. which we can just about sort of see, you know, like when he sort of thanks the executioner and says, don't worry, I'm going to paradise. They're getting close to it, but I think it would be super hard to deliver those to a modern audience as like slapstick <laughs> and not totally destroy this whole moment mm -hmm. and the scene. I'm James Patton Rogers, a war historian, advisor to the UN and NATO, and host of the Warfare podcast from History Hit. Join me twice a week, every week, as we look at the conflicts that have defined our past and the ones shaping our future. We talk to award-winning journalists. ISIS, this peculiar strain that we all came to know very well in the mid-2010s, really got its start because of the US invasion of Iraq. We hear from the people who were actually there. The Sudanese have been incredible. They have managed to get supplies to people, to individuals who are suffering. And we learn from the remarkable historians shining a light on forgotten histories. For the most part, the millions of people who were taken to those camps were immediately murdered. Auschwitz combined the functions of death camp and concentration camp and slave labor. Join us on the Warfare podcast from History hits twice a week, every week, wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One of the 
one thing that hasn't come out in any of the films, or at least those so far, is more the philosopher, more the thinker, which of course is how most students are going to encounter him. They're going to read Utopia and write that essay on whether it's satire or not. It's obviously hard to put someone writing books on screen, but do you think the absence matters? I think it's really difficult to depict that sort of philosophy on screen, to be perfectly honest. I think a novel can do it very well, and we can see examples of that. I mean, a novel, you can have an internal life, but the problem with screen or stage is that actually you sort of can't, that everything has to be expressed in dialogue, in you know interaction and so forth, which I think makes that very challenging. So I think, in a sense, what these depictions do is answer that by making him smart, mm. and they try and convey some of that and try to convey his cleverness, his verbal dexterity, all of this kind of stuff, but... I think it's really hard for a feature film, for a commercial film, to dig into that side of him. I can't really think of a number of good films made about philosophers full stop, to be perfectly honest, in that sense. <laughs> yeah, I've worked quite a bit on his philosophy. And as we've already said, it's very varied. It's difficult to pin down, and there are 15 volumes of it. So there's no way they could try to capture it. Man for All Seasons, he has a philosophy. Mm. It's actually completely opposite to the one that Thomas More had historically, but they try to give him this belief that is in some sense philosophical. It's also just really hard to reconcile in one character. We've already said that we have these two opposed views of him. The Tudors comes closest to balancing those. But even if you look at historians trying to grapple with more, they often separate him into the historical more, which is the statesman, the zealot more, and then the philosopher humanist more. And they will literally talk about multiple mores mm. to try to deal with all these different facets of him. So to do that in a television program that actually isn't about him is just too much. So we do lose something, although I do like in the Tudors, and they do it a bit in Man for All Seasons as well, when his books are taken away. Mm -hmm. There is that last lingering moment where he's looking at the quill and the books as they're taken away, and you get the sense of how important that was to him. His heart is broken. Exactly. I think in Wolf Hall, they capture that a bit, as Alex was saying, as well, sort of with reflections and mirrors, as mm. the respect that other people accord him, mm. other people from other countries, humanists, speaking in Latin, you get a sense that he is part of a European sort of Republic of Letters, in a sense. Mm. Okay, well, let's move on to Warfall. He is a very different person in Warfall, of course, and he serves as a counterpoint to the protagonist, Thomas Cromwell, even more than he does elsewhere, I think. Eamon Duffy's written about this, and he said that he is made into a kind of mirror image of Cromwell. He's a deliberate foil for the mm. central character, and actually... Almost, you've got a role reversal, and he suggests that in casting Rylance, that's particularly the case. Rylance is Cromwell because Cromwell looks like Holbein's rather refined more rather than Holbein's <laughs> thuggish Cromwell, which I think is a really interesting point. We've got to talk about Thomas More and heretics. Hmm. I don't think that many people know the scale of his anti-heretic drive, and yet this doesn't seem perhaps to be entirely accurate in the way it's portrayed. Can we talk both about the history and about this characterization? Joe, do you want to start? It's interesting because, as you say, I think people underestimate his anti-heretic drive and certainly the million plus words he wrote about it, people don't know. But they tend to, I think, overestimate how involved he was mm. in the actual persecution of heretics. So in terms of what we know, we know in the three years that he was Lord Chancellor, that's when we have the first prosecutions and executions of, we'll call them Protestant heretics for the moment, but Lutheran heretics and there are three of them and he oversees that as Lord Chancellor. In the Tudors for instance he's standing there in Wolf Hall he's actually involved in the torture 
of heretics. We have no record of that. And actually, these are accusations that he takes head on in his own time. They existed contemporaneously to him and his activities as Lord Chancellor. And his apology of Thomas More, which actually means a defense of Thomas More, he denies them. He says that lying people have said that I have tortured heretics, essentially, by tying them to a tree in my own house, and, and I never did this. He does admit, though, to whipping people, to punishing people for various offences, but not this sort of zealot persecution of heretics, and certainly not in his own home. I mean, that is a stretch. It's giving him too much power, anyway. Mm. I mean, it's church courts that decide who a heretic is, right? Well, I, so he might oversee uh, the sentence, yes. and he might very much approve of it and, in his writings, defend it. But this is the problem. It goes back to the Duffy quote you were saying. It, it, he is the foil to Cromwell yeah. here. And I think we have to remember that. I don't think Henry Mantel was out to get more. And there's been so much made about her convent mm. upbringing. She's just this utterly brilliant writer who we all miss so much, who is exactly that, coming up with a foil for Cromwell. And there's a brilliant line in one of the episodes where it's sort of Cromwell goes, my turn now, isn't it? <laughs> you're like, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. And that's the point. She's not there to demonise more. I don't think she's got this obsession with going after Catholics, which is how some Catholics have seen it since. I think that's wrong. But I think you're absolutely right, Joe, with everything you say about certainly his zeal is there. I mean, that was the majority view then, wasn't it? But he was very much a man of the law. And to go beyond the law and to personalise the law by persecuting heretics in his own home it was just beyond the sort of thing he would have been interested yeah. in. I'm very comfortable with all of that but I still want to come back then to the point that we are part of the reason surely for the contemporary angst about this, the discomfort with it, the tension that we feel, is that we still can't reconcile the liberal humanist of the yeah. man for all seasons mm -hmm. with a man who even relished the torture of heretic, who even oversaw it legally. Because then you're getting into the kind of territory of, you know, well, I didn't personally torture anybody, but, you know, I okay. signed all the laws and I absolutely oversaw it. And so that is just, you know, an official distance from torture that you actually legitimated is in our, you know, modern ethical system is no excuse, right? So the issue, it seems to me, is that we do still have a human being here who did all of these things, yeah. right? So regardless of Mantel, the depiction of Thomas More in it doesn't make sense of even so much of the historical record as is known by somebody like me, which isn't very much, but is enough to know that he was both this hagiographic figure and somebody who prosecuted heretics. And for me, that is one of the failings of her storytelling there is that it is too lopsided and it is too caricatured. And it is one of the moments where it pulls me back out of the storytelling because I just think you haven't given me a plausible historical figure who I believe in these scenes, given what else I have to know about him and that he would command all of this charm and all of this love. He's depicted as a hypocrite, yeah. right? Mm. So he's either a zealot or he's a hypocrite, but, you know, choose one because you, I, I don't think you can be a zealot and a hypocrite at the same time. But isn't that the Sorry. point? Isn't that the pushback from mm -hmm. the canonization? Like the mm -hmm. moment he's a saint, yeah. that's it. Everything is so polarized. You know, mm. you have to have this darkness and light. And I kind of feel like it's not his fault that he was canonized. But that's exactly why I'm objecting yeah. to Mantel because Mantel is, of course, the most recent depiction. And so one would hope that it would have that most darkness and light, that it would have a sense of, you know, psychological wisdom in it and a sense of understanding a human being pulled in these different directions by circumstance and by his time. But as we've said earlier, I think a lot of us feel that ironically enough, and to many of our surprise, the depiction of Jeremy Northam in the Tudors actually captures that more fully than 
this kind of caricature in order for him to be the foil. Subtle though, is it? I think it's Oh, I think it's a caricature. I think if you only read the press reviews, you would think it is a ridiculous caricature, like Orson Welles, which I loved, but, you know, it's kind of a cartoon. I think actually it's far more subtle. I mean, look, his performance of the script he was given, I mean, it is unbelievably sinister Mm. and complex and convincing and terrific. So I'm taking nothing away from the actor and on the contrary, adding to it, but also remembering the depiction on the page, which I also know quite well. And I do think that it is one of the places where her depiction of the characters lurches into caricature beyond what the historical record gave her. She had more complexity. She had to imagine Thomas Cromwell into existence. She's got an incredibly amazing character in Thomas More and she decides to caricature him. And I don't know. I find that that disappointing. I think we do lose something from the novel moving to the screen, Mm. which is, I think with the novel, we're very much in Cromwell's head and he does see it as a betrayal. He does see him as a hypocrite and that's harder to portray. I do agree that often historical fiction and historical drama, and especially on TV, needs its heroes and villains. But history is more complex than Mm -hmm. that because you have human beings. And I think Thomas More is a great example of someone who is so complex that it makes us question who we even are and the people around us. And I think that's the great gift of history is that nuance, is that ambiguity, is that humanity that we have to try our best to understand but not necessarily explain. I think there are two things really worth underlining in that. First of all, I think you could defend Mantel, and I agree, to be honest, I find it the least convincing of the Moors, but I think where you could defend it is that this is a Cromwell point of view. So you shouldn't be seeing this as a kind of neutral point of view. This is Cromwell's Moor, which actually is a quite villainous character and is somebody who needs defeating. So you have to see it filtered through the Cromwell prison. I think that's how she's writing it. And I think the other point about it is that Mantell was also living in the world and she's reacting to these portrayals in A Man of All Seasons mm-hmm. and The Tudors, which she watched and she's quite disparaging about in the reflections and so on that she gave. But she obviously was responding to because that was the first portrayal of Cromwell on screen that did redeem him somewhat and did give you a different yeah. version of it. And I think she's reacting against these popular versions, you yeah, know, so is. her more is a bit extreme because there's Paul Schofield in everyone's head being, mm-hmm. you know, the yeah. super virtuous more. Now, there's a clip that I think captures some of this complexity. She's also been to visit the Lady Exeter at her invitation. Lady Exeter is a foolish and ambitious woman. Well, Barton told her she'd be Queen of England. I repeat my comment. You don't believe in her vision, sir? I don't. She does it for attention. I've written to her, advising her to avoid the company of powerful men and women and to stay at home and pray. As should we all follow your example. Amen. I suppose you've kept a copy. Get it, Meg, otherwise you might never leave. James Bainham is to be burnt. Ask to see Henry. He'll welcome you back like a lost child. I'm not asking you to agree with James. If his doctrine is false, you can talk him back. Back to Rome. You're an eloquent man. You're the great persuader of our age. If he dies, you'll never know, will you, whether you could have saved his soul.
what I think that scene captures that, again, is probably too easily lost to a modern perspective is that it's easy to revile him for torturing heretics. But as Cromwell alludes to in that scene, is that in Moore's mind, he thinks he's torturing them in order to save them. So to get them to recant so that they can go to heaven and be reconciled with God, right? Yes, it is zealotry and yes, it is torture, but not just in his mind, because he's not aberrant, as we've been saying, but in the worldview that he represents. And I know this is very well known to historians of the period, but I think that for modernists, it's something that is very easy to lose sight of. It just looks like torture. And actually that it is torture in the name of saving someone's soul, which is what he actually believes that he's doing. Well, I think it's important that you draw that out because what I take from that scene is actually it's fudging over the fact that every execution of a heretic is a failure, right? They're Mm. not trying Mm. to round them up and execute them to get rid of them. They're trying to get them to convert. So the idea that he has to persuade Thomas More to persuade someone out of their heresy is completely inaccurate. And I think in a way that frustrates me a little Mm. bit, actually, because I think it portrays the entire enterprise, which I'm certainly not defending, It portrays it in this very sort of 20th century... Sadistic. Well, exactly, that it's a genocide sort of... They're trying to wipe out heresy. They're not trying to wipe out the heretics Heretics. themselves. I think that's what I love, though. Some of these lines, and it's Hilary Mantel, Peter Straw, the writer, and Peter Kosminski, the director, they are picking up on these sort of little historiographical moments, aren't they, where they sort of say yes, but this is the story that's going to be told and he's going to snigger every time I trip over my tongue. And it's again, it goes back to your point about the gaze, Joe. It's sort of nodding to the writing of history, isn't it? Which is what Hilary Mattel always talks about in mm. Reef Lectures mm. as well. She's sort of winking mm. and mm. saying, look, I know I'm making him a desiccated villain, but this is, as you say, it's Cromwell's gaze. Can we talk about how they handle the trial? You started earlier, Sarah, by saying this is a courtroom drama when we look at A Man Four Seasons. And one of the things that clearly comes out in that is that Rich is accused of perjury. Mm. And then, by contrast, in Wolf Hall, actually, we have the suggestion that Moore did actually convict himself by saying something. He just is such a haughty person that he said it to someone who didn't esteem and didn't think mattered and so that's his real crime but thinking about what constitutes innocence in this case and what doesn't and how it's all legally defined what are your thoughts on how it's handled as a kind of legal drama I'm very interested in this question and I'm interested in the way that it very much feeds back to the more theological, philosophical and historical conversations that we've been having. Because it seems to me that the way that, you know, when he says his defense in the Man for All Seasons version, which I take it is from the historical record, is when he says, after having kept my mouth shut, is it likely that I would have spilled my secrets to this stupid little louse, right? I mean, and that's basically what he says, right? And that's the defense. And then, as you say, in the Wolf Hall version, he did slip up. He did say it. He thought that this was true. And without creating further complications, I'm actually really interested in the question of equivocation. First of all, because I know Shakespeare much better than I know the Tudors, and because I know how important equivocation is in Shakespeare and Hamlet and many of the other major texts. As a question about your relationship with God and as a question about your relationship with justice, moral justice, what we might think of as Jesuitical or casuistical, these kinds of attempts to weasel your way through. Can you outwit God? And can you do that in a legal setting? And it seems to me in all of these versions of Thomas More, not knowing the historical record, in all three of them, I see equivocation in a way that none of it seems to me a convincing version of 
a man of faith at that time. I think that's really astute observation. And you say you're being anachronistic, but you don't realise how anachronistic, because equivocation is sort of permitted by the Pope in Elizabeth I's mm. period. Well, that's where it comes into Shakespeare, which is the part yes. I do understand. Right. Yeah. And so whether <laughs> Thomas More himself would have allowed himself the kind of equivocation you're talking about completely accurately, he probably wouldn't have done because he didn't have papal license for it. I think it's very important, as you say, to look at it from this theological point of view, but actually what we need to look at it is from a legalistic point of view. He's being a lawyer here. And in fact, I think it's in the Tudors where they talk about a conversation between lawyers, Rich being a lawyer mm. as well. What they are doing is putting cases and it's this exchange of hypothetical, theoretical situations. And that's what's supposed to protect him along with the silence. And it's just hypothetical. And, okay, and so it's not equivocation before God. It's not. It's, hy okay, it's, it's, okay, it's legal hypotheticals. Oh, and actually in the legal record, they give two versions of the putting of cases. One in which Rich gives a few cases and more essentially does condemn himself. And one in which Rich really leads and more is just sort of going along with the hypotheticals. And that's the one that more presents. And so in both cases, they're mooting these hypotheticals. In one, more condemns himself through these hypotheticals, and in one, he really, really doesn't. It's really, really difficult, though, to communicate that right. a to an audience who has no idea about the putting of cases, b who does not live in the 16th century, and c it all takes a really long time. So they have to find these ways through it in terms of presenting it on screen. The other thing about Rich, there aren't many inaccuracies that we've talked about and there aren't many throughout the three, but one liberty they did take is the backstory between Richard Rich and Thomas More in A Man for All Seasons, which is completely fictionalised and Rich was not as well known to More as he was there. In the trial, he says he's known him since a boy, though. But so, not but no, not, 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 not the same. No. One thing that they don't take liberties with, though, is that Rich is a dick. <laughs> no, I've got to call him Dick Richard. He's <laughs> <laughs> a dick not only to Catholics but to Protestants. So, in, in, at the end this of is Henry VIII, term for anyone listening, yeah. Yeah. gloves are finally off. Oh, we have had some very, very complex historical no. dialogues about. You know, we it's don't know who humans can be through the mediated historical record, but this guy's no. a dick. <laughs> dick, Richie Rich, dick, asshat. <laughs> <laughs> is clear. I mean, I mean he, he is. He I mean, is. He, he later, I mean, he later tortures Anne Askew with his own hands. This is fairly substantiated. No, I, was, I wasn't oh, no. doubting it for a second. I just found it slightly hilarious. That we just celebrate. Many, many yeah. complex people, but not this guy. No. <laughs> now, clearly, Henry VIII does something pretty awful. They create an act with which to kill more. It is judicial murder. And there is also this question of silence. More is resting on this idea that silence implies consent, and that really ought to have been enough to get him off. Well, there are three charges laid against Moore. One is that he maliciously denies the king's supremacy through his silence. And so that question of what his silence betokens, as they talk about in Man for All Seasons. The other is that he colludes with Fisher, which is only something they deal with in the Tudors. Mm. And third, that during this conversation with Rich, he essentially Admits. ends up condemning himself. As historians, we're not sure. Certainly, he's condemned on the third one. He's charged with it and found guilty on the third one. He may have also been found guilty on the other two. But that first charge is about what his silence means 
And it should, he's right, it should mean consent. And it's interesting, actually, I do think A Man for All Seasons is the clearest explanation of that. Mm, I agree, um, yeah. I mean, you're right that the Tudors is interesting because it brings in Fisher, which is complicating and all of that. But actually, I did feel that A Man for All Seasons really got that point very clear, which is quite a tricky one. Well, on the other hand, it does spend the whole two hours talking about that. No, pretty point. much. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that's exactly why I was asking the question about equivocation, because if the whole principle of the thing is that he thinks that this is heretical and he thinks that everything about this is immoral and wrong and he in no way can reconcile himself to it. And then he stands before a court of law and says, but my silence says consent. That's exactly what I mean when I say that to at least to a modern sensibility, that's a loophole. It's a technicality. He's saying... Legally, should be taken to exactly, yes. no, exactly. But he's that's saying legally, really weaselly, though. but that's really weasley. I'm saying that's a loophole. Legally, my silence should be taken to betoken consent. Is when you're actually saying that the, when the whole position is about when he's being martyred mm -hmm. for his refusal to consent. It does feel like it's the kind of last refuge of a scoundrel at that point, and then he loses, and then he says. Okay, if I'm yeah. going to die anyway, I'll tell you what I really think, which is, yes, I'm opposed to the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And then he gets murdered. That brings in both the points because poor old Bishop John Fisher, who mm. actually stood up for it more than more, is forgotten in, in, <laughs> in history because he was a churchman. And the fact is, and why Moore is so extraordinary in this moment is because he's a layman and one of the first laymen to be canonised for godness centuries. And I think, in a way, that gets to the crux of the point of Batmore and why he's an icon now because... We love him because he stood on principle, but we hate him for that too, because it exposes us as quislings, mm -hmm. as laymen, as ambitious people, as people who protect our families and want to carry on living. And I think in a way that's the crux of the issue. And, you know, one man cannot sustain that. Well, that's what Bolt found difficult about him. He writes this play in the 50s. The film is 1966, but in 1961, he's arrested. I think he's protesting nuclear proliferation or something. So he's living those principles that he writes into Man for All Seasons about personal belief against the state and the right to protest and everything else. And he essentially signs a recantation to get himself out of jail. Mm. And it haunts him for the rest of his life because he doesn't live the life that he has given to Moore. He can't even live up to his Thomas Moore. One final question for you then. Do you have sympathy with Moore in the end? Do you think that he is the man of singular virtue, the man of conscience, the one who was canonised? Or do you think he's a difficult, stubborn zealot who should just have said the words? Personally, I find it difficult not to admire somebody who voluntarily dies for their principles, who was given multiple, multiple opportunities to say, I'll say what you want me to say, I'll sign the paper, I'll do whatever it takes to survive and who doesn't, I find it hard not to find something admirable in that, even if I ultimately take the Mark Rylance, Thomas Cromwell position that just say what you need to say to survive. I feel quite similar. I feel obviously there's something admirable in his stance and all of that. And at the same time, I just think on a human level, I would have found him completely insufferable. Oh, God. Oh, I mean, just totally impossible. But I mean, that's why he's an interesting figure, isn't he? He's very compelling because he does, as you said, contain multitudes. <laughs> he is deeply, deeply oppressive, mm. and you have to admire that. You do, you do yeah. have to admire that. Yeah. No, that's my point. I guess that's exactly why there's a backlash, because mm. it's much easier to criticise him yeah. than to admire him in a way. Your question was about sympathy. Do we have sympathy for him? Do we sympathise with him? As someone who's currently in the darkest part of writing a biography about him, I think it's important to always have a certain amount of sympathy for the historical figures that you're working on. 
it's the boundaries of that that become very, very difficult. I have sympathy for him as a human being who lived through difficult times. I have admiration for him as someone who wrote some truly great works. I have admiration for him as a thinker. I think some of the principles that he advocated for, the common good, community, are principles that we could get back to. But I wouldn't go so far as to say that I admire him or that anything that I ever write will be a defense or praise of him. Well, thank you all very, very much for coming back, for agreeing to come back to another Not Just Tudor's Late and to talking about this continually fascinating character. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.